Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted after a long back and forth of canceling on each other for very valid reasons. I finally have Dr. Tracy Shores here with me today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad we could finally make this happen. Oh, I, I'm so excited for this conversation. I want to just read my audience the, the quick bio that's at the back of your book. Tra- Dr. Tracy Shores is a distinguished professor in behavioral and, and systems neuroscience and a member of the Center for Collaborative Neuroscience at Rutgers University. She's also the vice chair and director of graduate studies in the Department of Psychology. She's published more than 140 scientific articles in reports like Nature, Nature Neuroscience, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science of the United States of America, all kinds of super impressive things. And you are also the author of Everyday Trauma, Remapping the Brain's Response to Stress and Anxiety and Painful Memories for a Better Life. Who wouldn't want that? That is fantastic and amazing. And the reason that I reached out to you, I just said this off mic, is that multiple people actually recommended your book when it came out. So I was on the pre-order list and got it the day it came out. And I think I finished it like that night with a million notes in the, in the linings. There are not very many folks who are sort of making neuroscience approachable. And my audience is an audience who's used to hearing a bit about how the brain works. So I would love for you to dive in. Tell us about your work. Tell us about the book. How did you get to this spot of interest and, and, you know, what is it that you would like for people to take away when they're reading the book? Yeah, thank you for that introduction. You know, I kind of reached an age where I felt like I should share this information. Love it. You know, I've been doing research on the brain since, gosh, since I was, practically since I was an undergraduate, you know, yeah. really starting in psychology and biology. I majored in both. And then I did some research on a few other organs, like the heart and the (laughs) blood research. But then, you know, I eventually decided to focus on the brain. And that was in my early 20s. And really, since then, I've been been studying the brain and just kind of felt like it's unfortunate sometimes that, that scientists don't translate what they're doing to other people. It's, you know, it's hard to, because we do tend to get into the weeds (laughs) a bit, but you know, it's too bad that there's a lot of, I feel like kind of simple, simplified information about the brain. You know, people hear about fight or flight, or they hear about cortisol, or they hear about the amygdala, but you know, those are kind of very, just very simplified ideas of how how the brain works. And so I just felt like, yeah, it was time to to take what I had been doing, not just in the laboratory, which I, I did focus on for about yeah. you know 20 or so years, but also I've kind of since then moved out into the into the world, so to speak, into the community, you know, trying to understand trauma and how particularly how women respond to trauma. Yeah. Uh, trying to help help them with trauma to some extent and uh, yeah so the book is a little bit it's a little bit psychology it's quite a bit neuroscience and then it's got got some more almost self-help I guess I would call it at the end it's I found that part super cool so you know I'm not a neuroscientist but I think if I started again I would probably not listen to all the scientists in my young life and all the mathematicians telling me that wasn't where my brain was the sharpest because it's certainly where my, my curiosity is. Right. And I've been in this field doing trauma therapy for 20 years. And I probably spent the first 10 without a lot of understanding of how the brain worked. I mean, even the amygdala. And I remember sitting and being taught the first time and just my brain exploding and being exhausted by the words and not understanding where the hippocampus was. But now I've integrated that information and it's hard to imagine being in the world of trauma and not understanding it. Right. So I love your answer, which is you felt like it was about time you shared this information because the reality is it, from my perspective, it's such a damn shame that we don't have more core education about 
this element, this sort of systemic mind-body connection that really is the driver of so many things when, you know, it's not kept in stasis. It's the driver of so many things, not great things in a lot of ways. No, I agree. You know, and there's still this kind of division between psychology and biology, you know, because, oh, that's a psychological phenomenon. Well, it it can't be a psychological phenomenon unless it has a biological mechanism underlying. It just can't, you know, (laughs) and so, but that, that history is, you know, still around, of course. And I, I even have a hard time sometimes distinct, you know, yeah, yeah, it's easy to fall into that trap of saying, well, that's a psychological you know, symptom. Well, but it's also a biological symptom. I have the same argument with mental health and health, right? There's nothing that's going on inside your brain that isn't impacting the rest of your body. And, you know, again, you can have one conversation with a neuroscientist where they talk to you about the cranial nerves and the vagus nerve. And then, you know, there it is, there's the math behind it. And I can also talk myself out of that position because if we didn't have the word mental health, there's so many ways in which people would lose their capacity to kind of talk about where their distress is and how it's significantly different than like a pain in their side. Can I ask you particularly, part of the reason I love, I also write, so I know this is thrilling, like I'm showing Dr. Shores just all of the lines and edits and, you know, hot pink post-it notes that I have in here. I'm going to read this out loud and then maybe you can take it back, but I really want to talk about ruminations. Okay. I use my own practice and the clients that I treat for trauma as my little qualitative research of who knows what about what. And the concept of rumination is like, yeah, no, I know what that is, Megan. Yeah. And then I say, good, great. Tell me. And then nobody knows what it is. And people are not able to distinguish. I also often ask people, do you know the difference between an emotion and a feeling? And then you can just see the way people's answers, like, no, they don't know. And again, I'm not critical of people. I just think those are really important things to know. And ruminations are something that everyone has. It's not necessarily a trauma thing, but it's a trauma thing. So I'm going to read out loud from page 53. And then I would love for you to just fill in what you think is useful. Ruminating thoughts are commonly mistaken for worries, but they are different. Worries have intention where ruminations typically do not. I mean, right now, chills all over my body. The clearest description defining the two. Ruminations are autobiographical and directed at oneself. My mind is exploding. Worries also tend to be autobiographical, but they are usually focused on solving a particular problem or addressing a particular solution. I have this written on the top of a notebook so that I can say there's the, you know, Dr. Shores at Rutgers wrote this incredibly clear sentence. You got to that description. You understood that people needed to know the difference. Can you just walk through for me and the audience what it means to be ruminating and why you bothered to write about it? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I didn't initially plan for the book to be have so much about ruminations when I started writing it and then it you know as I was writing it kind of crystallized for me that that was kind of the the common somewhat of the common denominator really uh, of many of these symptoms that we have yes in fact we we actually did a study on this kind of recently we published it last year where we measured a bunch of different symptoms in in mostly in women in this particular study, anxiety, depression, trauma-related thoughts, thoughts about traumas in the past, even how we feel about our our body, stress, you know, how how stressed out we feel. And what we found is that one of the biggest predictors of these other symptoms was rumination. So it's not that these thoughts are just kind of a a tag along, you know, with in our brain or in our lives, but they actually have, you know, they're connected to all these other other feelings and and thoughts. You know, why is that? Well, for one thing, when you're ruminating, when you're going over the same thought over and over, you know, you've kind of gotten all the important information out of it, but you're still going over it for some reason. It's like a habit. 
you know, yep. it's a type of memory, but, and it's a habit. You're not doing, you can't do other things. That's I mean, right. the brain can only do really one thing at a time. That's right. You know, and it, it, it can go back and forth between things, but it can't focus on like a thought and do something else that might be more beneficial or have more information in it. So, so when you're ruminating, <clears throat> you're kind of using, it's even been shown, you know, certain networks in the brain, they're just being used over and over and over again, to the exclusion of other networks that might be more, you know, engaging and more useful for you. The other reason that I, I think it's important to understand more about ruminations, and again, not think of them as just this kind of tag along behavior is that when you ruminate or in, bring up any kind of memory for that matter, but when you bring up a memory that you've been rehearsing over and over again, <clears throat> that memory becomes attached to now. And that's true, again, for most memories, you know, and ruminations are, are a type of memory. So you bring up this memory of something that you're really upset about, or you, or you hated, or you are regret, or you blame yourself for. I mean, they're usually, I call them memories laced with mood. Yes. You know, so they have this mood to them. They're not just memories. Anyway, so you bring this memory up, <clears throat> makes you feel bad about yourself, probably. You know, they usually aren't particularly, particularly nice memories. And now you made another memory. Right. Because now that memory has become associated with whatever it is you're doing in this moment. And again, you could say, well, so what? You know, we have lots of memories in our brain, but it actually makes a difference. It makes a difference in your brain because where else would it be? Of course, that memory is now in your brain. And so now not only are you, you know, not engaged potentially with what's going on now, you're making these actual these more of these memories. It's amazing. Thank you for that. That's such a perfect answer. And I think it in trauma work in particular, it, it's such a good argument for working very hard to help your, your brain release. I have a lot of metaphors that I use, like, like a footpath down to the beach where you crush the beach grass, but eventually it stops growing. You know, the ways in which we can walk around a track there's no new information. We're expending all our energy here. We're not doing, you know, we're just wearing our body down. We're not getting anywhere. When people are taking the trauma information, that's like picking up debris from the track that you were on, trying to leave it and dumping your crap on the new track. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, we're hoping isn't a track is actually a pathway. And so that concept of the brain is really an instrument to code and predict what you're doing with those ruminations when they are not managed is you are using them as information to predict your future. So now the trauma that is unresolved and maybe not stable is deciding things that haven't even happened yet, which is just brutal. My listeners know that when my mom died, suddenly when I was on vacation with her, I experienced PTSD pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks of her dying. And it, it became really terrible. And I had to go to inpatient treatment. Primarily, it had some images, which is, you know, a hallmark of PTSD, but primarily the thought of it's your fault she died was relentless. And part of me understood that that was not the case, right? Like part of me sort of in that IFS world, you know, part of me understood and part of me hundred percent believed that it was my fault. Yeah. And it, it is like a willful practice to say, I am going to choose to not believe this and not pull that rebel onto the next pathway that I'm walking down. But I was very aware in my mourning and my grief over my mother's death, that it served a purpose to blame myself because I could spend all day looping on that track. If only I had done this differently, if I could have done that differently. When I finally stopped doing that and I knew it even before it happened was the moment that I was going to have to start living without my mother, mm -hmm. at least taking a step forward down a path where she was not a part of it. 
staying on the trauma track, staying in the rumination meant really this thing hasn't hundred percent happened yet. It's not even really in my present. It's just this, I'm kind of frozen here. So I really liked the way that you wrote about ruminations because I just think there's nothing that humans do that really doesn't serve a purpose. And so even though it was thrashing me and really contributing to my ill health, it really did also kind of serve a purpose that was, I, I hesitate to say helpful, but it, but for the time that it was helpful, it was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate actually, because I was really traumatized when my mother died too. And I, and I, I actually did have a lot in, at one point in the book about it. And then I decided it was just too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, it's, it's hard to it's like hard. an autobiography, you know, but, and there was already a lot about my mother, but yeah, I, you know, she, she had a stroke and then she, she did die a few weeks later. And, and, but we went through all these decisions in the hospital, you know, when, when to, when to give up and all those kind of things. And, and there, there really was no, you know, she wasn't going to survive. She, she was fine. She wanted to go, but you know, you have to make those decisions and I had to make them. Yeah. And so, you know, like you afterwards, I was just like, well, could I have done this or could we have done that? And, and finally I, I called the doctor like m- weeks later and he was like, Tracy, <laughs> no, there's nothing you could have done. Like you, you have to just like accept that. And yeah, that was hard. And I think honestly that, which we've just shared, right? Like my story, your story and everybody else's story. I think it's important to just normalize that that's actually part of the grief process. It does yeah, it's totally you- normal. In fact, one of the things I was, I was, again, I had it and I did took it out at some point, but I had this image of my mother when, when she first died and it was in the hospital and it was crystal clear, this image, like no matter what I did, it would come up in my head. And I was just like, wow. And then what I realized is, you know, as time, it's been like 10 years or more now that the other, other images of my mother, which I have millions (laughs) in my brain, you know, came back. So it wasn't just that. I mean, I still see that one, but I see also all the other ones. And that's, yeah, it's natural. Like I said, like, because you have all these other memories, it just takes a while for them to kind of get intermingled with this, you know, ridiculously traumatic one. Yeah. Can't that's, quit thinking about. I talked to, I don't know if you know this woman, cause I don't know if y'all know each other the way that like the people in my world know each other, but Dr. Lisa Shulman, and she wrote a book about when her husband died. She's also a neuroscientist and I was talking to her about a memoir that I was writing that I've been writing. And I said, you know, I just can't remember this whole section. And she was, and she said, just keep writing. It will come out. You were there, you participated, you know, your body is doing this thing and your mind is protecting you and, but it's there and it will loosen when it's ready. And I found so much hope in that, right? Like there's wisdom in what the system is doing. It's not stupid. It's exactly what happened. At one point I woke up and was like, there's the, there's those whole 12 hours that I couldn't, I I knew what happened because people told me, but I didn't have my own autobiographical memory. And at the same time, I started studying sort of how the, the memories are formed in the brain and how they're held in the brain. And while we're looking and your book does such a beautiful job of this, of like, yeah, here's the biology, here's the neuroscience. But also there are some things that we can do to encourage our bodies to calm, our bodies to soothe and, you know, to manage rumination and to move off a trauma track. And again, I mean, I've been a trauma therapist for a couple of decades. I think as trauma therapists, we talk a lot about how to stabilize trauma. We don't talk a lot about living after you have stabilized trauma. Yeah. Which, you know, trauma survivors still need help with. We still need help to sort of understand, you know, that it's safe to take the footsteps forward. And I think being able to normalize things like, yeah, no, regret and guilt and second guessing are actually just, you know, bad dreams and having a hard time on an anniversary, like these are not even, these are just standard grief responses that 
everyone experiences or for, you know, for the most part people experience. Yeah. And they help you learn how to deal with the next one. You know, that's the other thing is I think sometimes people think memories are there just to, you know, make us miserable or, or to reminisce about our vacation or how it used to be, but, but they're really there for the future to help us. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing. Mary Frances O'Connor talks about this, that our memories are the things that help us code our experiences and predict what's going to happen. But when you are grieving, there's really, it is a truly novel experience that even if you have grieved your father, grieving your mother is not the same, grieving your daughter is not the same. And while there may be some things that are generalizable, you still have to walk very new. This is a very new day. The earth is now tilted on its axis. You have a before and an after, and you have to, you have to move forward into the after. And I want to talk about what I think is so unique. And I actually went onto your website and watched some videos because I do think the blending of, let me tell you what's going on. And then let me encourage you to help yourself with that experience is I just haven't seen that in another book. I write a little bit like that myself, which is, let me tell you about what's going on. And let me tell you how clinicians would treat this. So go ask clinicians about EMDR and sensory motor psychotherapy. Can you talk to the audience about, you don't just stop telling us, Hey, here's what's going on in the trauma that we carry. It's almost like it's almost like a new episode. Like you get to the section in the book and it's like, ta-da. And now we're going to offer you something that you didn't even know you were going to get. Can you tell me about how you decided to do that? And then maybe even just talk the audience through it a little bit, because I think it's real specific and very clear. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, when I was working in the laboratory and making, you know, some of these discoveries about how the brain changes with learning and how it it can, you know, certain behaviors can over, kind of overcome or at least help us reduce stress and trauma. So, I don't, you know, kind of a, some knowledge about that. I was involved in, in the kind of first studies about neurogenesis, which, which is the production of new neurons yeah. in the brain. They happen to be in the hippocampus. And, and, you know, one of the things that my lab discovered now, several decades ago, was that these neurons tend to die unless you learn something new. I freaking love this. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of like a use it or lose it phenomena. You're producing these cells. And then if, if learning happens, they survive. So they're very transient, obviously, and, and really sensitive to experience. And one of the other things that we found is that it had to be effortful. You know, the learning had to be effortful. It can't be something simple. It'd be hard. Like ruminating, which is obviously kind of simple because it's a habit. So it had to be something new and something effortful. You know, other labs had been had been showing that these cells were very sensitive to aerobic exercise. And so I just thought, well, maybe it would be useful for people to put these two activities together. You know, something that's really engages your mind, makes you concentrate. And then couple it with this aerobic exercise. It's kind of theoretical. It's very hard to prove, you know, because. Yes. Yeah. Which is part of the reason I appreciated it, because a lot of what, you know, I have a background in academia and you can get with the academics and they're like, well, where's your evidence-based study? And it's like, I can't give you an evidence-based study on Reiki. I can't, a cranial sacral massage. Like all I can tell you is, you know, these were the symptoms my client had and now they don't have them. And 10 of them, you know, did that. So I really appreciate you saying, look, it's just something that we know. Yeah. <laughs> just something that we know. I mean, I, I kind of had to just go for it because yeah. otherwise, again, because otherwise, if you ask people to say, well, you, how are you going to prove that? Or like, well, that's why I often say it was inspired by these yeah. findings because I, I can't prove word. it. That's a good word. Perfect. Yeah. And it, actually at this point, I'm not even sure it matters. <laughs> I mean, I am going to do a brain imaging study soon we're doing it right now to, to maybe you know kind of look more at at the to get more evidence about yeah. the mechanisms in the brain but in a way it doesn't even matter because it does seem to help people you know they they ruminate less they are less anxious they're less stressed so so the program is basically 30 minutes of meditation 
sitting in silence yeah. for 20 minutes of that 30. Yep. I didn't want it to be guided because I, I wanted it to be difficult. And yep. guided meditation is, you know, easier to some extent because yeah. someone else is telling you what to do. I wanted people to sit with their own thoughts in that moment. You know, so you, you come in, you, you're having all these thoughts, whatever they are about your day or what you're worried about or the traumas you've had or what you're afraid of in the future. And you sit, you know, with those thoughts and try to focus on your breath, which as we know is very difficult because before you know it, you're off thinking about <laughs> lunch or what that person said to you that really made you mad and anyway regretting what you just did and so the, the point is to kind of recognize you know to learn to, to focus to recognize that you forgot and then to remember oh I'm supposed to focus so I think of it as a learning process because yeah. you're always learning in the moment about your own thoughts you know it's it's and it's hard you know, you ask people, why don't you meditate like that? Well, because it's hard. <laughs> oh my God. I regularly, I mean, I'm not a bullshitter. So I will say to folks like, listen, I'm going to give you all the data on why meditation is so good for you. I have a million examples. I have examples from other people. And also I can only do about 10 minutes a day. Yeah. And that's the truth. Although I will say, I do notice when I don't meditate, I do 10 minutes a day and I have for, I don't know, at least three or four years now. And I have been known to get up out of bed because I forgot to do it because it's like a commitment for me. And I feel like it's like when you stretch your muscles, I feel like there is a genuine elasticity in my brain where I can bring it back to neutral by will because I've practiced yeah. that. But if, and I do use guided meditation because I don't have the, well, and also I think with some of my trauma survivors, people who've had real physical trauma, I, I think asking them to be with just themselves to start meditation is too scary. So I usually give them either my voice or someone's voice to start with and then say, you know, if you want to make this harder, or more challenging, there are other ways. But the gorgeous thing about meditation is there, you know, people understand that it's so important and there are a million ways to do it now that- Exactly. I mean, the other reason I kind of kept it, I wanted to keep it as simple as possible so that anyone could do it, Yeah. you know, anywhere they are and they didn't, I always say like, it's portable. <laughs> you could take right. it anywhere. You just have to do it. Yes. I have a friend who says like, the only good kind of meditation is the kind you do. You know, you can talk about it there. I got all these books about it, <laughs> but, and I know I have a lot of friends, you know, study it. And yeah. then you say like, well, have you done it lately? And like, oh no, because <laughs> it's hard. Well, and there are so many things that we, you know, eating well and sleeping a lot and all those things that I think people need constant reminders and all of us, because we're so right brain activated by all the things that are happening in our world right now. There's so much anxiety and stimulation that it is actually harder to say, I'm going to take time out yeah. and not be in that activated state. Yeah. I, I think the concept of novelty, of doing something new and something hard is extraordinary. And when we first hit the pandemic, you know, when everybody was doing like plank challenges and making sourdough bread and, you know, showing it on Instagram, I was like, you know, I hate this, please stop doing that. But also I was really aware many of my clients, which is also true of trauma survivors, you know, many of them have a small footprint in their life and maybe even live alone or live with a pet. And that lack of stimulation, right? I'm thinking about Stephen Porges, you know, polyvagal theory, which reminds us that actually the first instinctive thing that we do when we're in distress is look to people to help us. For many, many people in the pandemic, people were not an option. You, in fact, they were a threat. They activated the system, right? You saw your neighbor walking the dog and you can't talk to them. In fact, he better not walk over here because that's going to be dangerous for me. I The concept of of being able to offer to people, let's, why don't you learn something hard? 
what can we give you that would be of interest, maybe random, maybe it's pleasurable, but maybe it's just to do something hard. Yeah, to challenge, that, challenge your brain. Challenge your brain because the, the other option is lack of stimulation. And so it was like, almost like we had to, we had to overcompensate for all the time that we were in the house and not doing things. It's part of how this podcast started for me was like, well, I don't know. I have no idea how people make podcasts, but I'm smart. I can figure these things out. And it turned, and then I, so that was my sort of instinct at the beginning. And then again, as often happens, I noticed that people had written about it because other people knew it already to be true that novelty is something that pulls us out of going back to trauma patterns, old haunted houses where our brains can go. I mean, the brain loves novelty. You know, it kind of thrives on it to some extent. It's very, you know, the neurons respond to novel stimulus. And then after a while, if they say they keep getting the same stimulus, then they don't respond as much. And, you know, that's been shown in the visual system where it's obvious, you know, if you see a bright light and then after a while, you don't notice not it. right anymore. Well, that's because the brain has habituated to it. But you could say the same thing, like we were talking about ruminations, right? Yes. The first couple of times around that thought, you're like, yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder why that did happen and why I was involved and what happened then before you know it, you're going over it again. And then you're, so now the brain is not as interested. I hate to anthropomorphize the brain too much, but <clears throat> it's not responding as much. That's right. As a consequence, it's not producing these substrates that it needs. I mean, again, it's not, you know, it's real. The brain is a, it's a, it's a piece of tissue. It's made out of fat and protein and, you know, amino acids, and it's got electrical activity going through it. So it's not, it's not some esoteric thing. It's, it's a piece of tissue. And so it needs cells. It needs blood flow. It needs blood vessels to make blood flow happen. So when you're active, that's what happens. The structure of the brain actually changes. You know, the the second part of of this program that I have is is aerobic exercise. And that's also effortful, right? It's not taking a walk down the street. It's actually getting your heart rate uh, about twice about double your resting heart rate. So for most people, that's 120 beats per minute. Now, a lot of people, if you ask them, like, do you exercise? Yeah, you know, I took a walk or I went to the, to the gym and lifted some weights. That's not aerobic exercise. Yeah, that's right. You know, you ha- it has to be effortful. You'll probably be sweating. You may not like it. You know, I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I don't like to exercise like that, but it is really good for the brain. Yeah. And, you know, the brain uses 20% of the oxygen you breathe, even though it only accounts for like one or 2% of body weight. I didn't know that. So almost all, not almost all, but a significant percentage of the, of the air you breathe in that eventually oxygen gets into the bloodstream goes to your brain. And that's because the brain needs a lot of energy. It needs energy to think and to remember and to learn and to forget and to whatever, you know, and create. So the best way to get extra, to get oxygen to your brain is through aerobic exercise. Like there is no drugs you can take. There is no, you know, this is nothing like it. It's interesting because one of the questions I get asked a lot is like, is there just anything that's universally good for trauma? Because one of the things that I think is sort of irresponsible and out there is if you pick up a magazine, there's, you know, they've, they're talking about trauma and they're referring to self-care as a way of, you know, mitigating trauma or, and, and sometimes some of the things that they're talking about, like if you're in, I don't know, in, in hypo arousal, so you're outside of your window of tolerance and you can't get out of bed the little list in the magazine says like, take a bubble bath. Well, like a bubble bath is not a good idea for you if you haven't, you know, gotten out of bed. So part of what we teach on this program and in general is sort of like, listen, not, not all self-care is actually helpful and self-care is not a treatment. And, but one question I get asked a lot is, okay, Megan, well, is there anything that's universally good? And generally my answers are some form of breath work 
It doesn't have to be meditative, but some, because we don't really have access to our insides in any other way, except with our breath, right? And we can impact how our heart is beating and how our lungs are, you know, and all the rest of it by, by controlling our breath and exercise, whether you're looking at it as like, oh, bilateral stimulation balances the brain, the yin and the yang of it from, you know, Eastern, it doesn't matter some element of moving the body is universally good for people. I actually, so I signed up for the little video. I really hope people get your book and my audience knows that I give away five copies. So if you want one, you know, get in touch with me and I'll send it to you. But at the back, it gives you all the contact information to go and check out the program. First of all, you're not joking. It is an effort. You're I don't know whether to call it like an aerobics class, but it is, it is not for the kind of like an aerobics, like an eighties aerobics class. I did in the eighties. So (laughs) it is, I mean, that's what it is. And, and you will be huffing and puffing out of there, but it's very concrete and it's very clear. And again, it's almost like a, it's almost like a prescription that you write for people, which is like, look, if you do this and this, it's good for your brain and good for your body. Like that's the, and, and I think there are sometimes some things where it's like, oh, it's it's good for your brain if you have anxiety, but bad for your brain, if you have depression, you know, these things that you are asking us to consider adding to our lives are just kind of nothing but good for you, which is, you know, in our studies, we have provided this program to a number of populations trauma populations, so yeah. women with sexual violence history. We did a study with women who, who have HIV, medical students, people with chronic depression, clinical depression. We just finished a study with teachers during the pandemic, <clears throat> but we, we, we finished it a while ago. We just published it. It's coming yeah. out soon, where we provided it online to, to K-12 teachers during the pandemic because we knew they were obviously quite stressed out. Yeah. It was, you know, summer of 2020 when when the pandemic was really at its height and they had to go back either into the classroom or teach online. And so we gave it to them. And in in every single population, yeah, it decreases depression a lot, decreases anxiety, decreases ruminations, uh, increases, you know, traumatic thoughts. So for whatever reason, this combination is particularly effective. And, and we, we even did a study some years ago where we, we had some women who had trauma history, most of them only meditated twice a week. We had another group who only did aerobic exercise twice a week. And then we had another group who did both together. And those people did do better. Was that what you expected to see? Wait. Well, I was hoping, you know, I yeah. didn't, I, yeah, you know, it's dangerous to hope or expect. I know, I know. we're not supposed to say that as scientists. No, but people know. did ask me that a lot. They're like, well, of course we know meditation's good. We know exercise is good. So, you know, what's the big deal? You know, and I said, well, I think it's the combination. Yeah. It's particularly good. And, and, and in fact, one of the studies I'm most excited about, I'm going to start soon, is we're going to actually scan in this case, these are women with trauma, their brain before yeah. and after one session, because there's something about that experience yeah, that gives not, you a, like, a, and it's kind of, it's hard to explain it, but it's a qualitatively different experience. Yeah. So f- for me, if I just exercise, which I do, I'm, I'm an aerobicizer from like, you know, Jane Fonda days. Love, love it. I feel good. And I, but I feel a little almost a little anxious. Like I have a lot of energy then. Yeah. And if I just meditate, I feel much calmer, but a little on the sleepy side. Yep. You know, so something about the combination, you're, you're, you're kind of relaxed, you feel clear, but you have energy. And to I me, think- that's what, that's what you need to kind of get out of that, you know, to, to get out of ruminating and, and to try new things both as someone who like is so interested in studies trauma and has experienced trauma. Like, you know, I, I try not to overlay my experience and be like, Hey, that's what trauma is. I'm thinking about one time I went to the pediatrician because one of my kids was like only eating one food at the beginning of the week. 
And then he'd get distracted by other stuff and he wasn't eating. And the pediatrician was like, look, you got to look at this over the course of like a month. This isn't every day, you know, he needs to be, he's growing and he's changing and he's, and I think about, you know, PTSD, the trauma that still lives. I believe I'll have some version of this PTSD. It'll be with me forever. That practicing intentionally inviting in the activated state of my mind. I'm learning something. I'm doing something. I'm intentional. I have high energy inside my body. So I'm in that reactive and active state in my brain and my body and practicing the cooling down. Like, so, so switching on of my own accord, sort of from the right brain and the left brain reminds me of everything that I've studied in Eastern philosophies about, you know, cold water and hot water and everything about the yin and the yang and trying to always be balancing an energy so that you are at some sort of a neutral. I think the idea of whether you're anxious, whether you're depressed, practicing both so that your body understands and your mind is relying on you to be able to sort of shift the energy and keep it, keep the, keep the cup there's nothing scientific in what I'm saying, but, but as a general impression, that makes so much sense to me. And it did when I read it, which was months ago. And then I was like, I'm going to do this every day. And of course I didn't. And so now <laughs> I have to come back and be reminded, but I think it's important, right? Because I have people who run anxious and tell me they do yoga. And then what really they're talking about is they go to a yoga class and they only do 50 sun salutations which is not the same as yin yoga, which is basically deep stretching into the fascia and more of the calming system of your body. So, so I do think part of what is incredible about your program is that you are asking people to practice this regularly. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, right? If there's anything I wish I could do is make it so that, because what we try to do, at least when we offer these courses online or in person is is at the end of each class, you know, bring it all home and say, like, remember how you feel right now. Like, yeah. really sit with how you feel. Yeah. You know, you're because I watch these people, they come in before they're like complaining, life is horrible, all these things. And then afterwards, they're like kind of laughing and talking. I'm like, whoa, total change in one hour, right? So yeah. remember how you feel now and then use that memory because that's a memory too. Use that memory so that when you start to feel down or, or think about not doing it or you know, rather watch TV kind of mode that you remember, oh, I could use this one hour to actually yeah. change how I feel. One um, of the Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say in the yin yang part, you know, to some extent we have an inherent yin yang because of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic yeah. nervous system, which are always in, in trying to be, they have to interact. I mean, when you breathe in, it's sympathetic. When you breathe out, it's parasympathetic. So like, even if some, something as simple as breathing is using both systems, okay. or as I discuss in the book, sex, you know, when you're excited, when you get excited, you know, that's sympathetic or parasympathetic, and then it turns into sympathetic or, well, it goes on and on. But I, I think that potentially what's happening after MAP training, particularly for trauma, considering trauma thoughts, is that we usually associate trauma thoughts with a racing heart. You know, yeah. when you have a, a trauma, traumatic thought, or you going through a memory, even when I was talking about my mom a little while ago dying, you know, I could feel myself like yeah. my heart starting to race and, and the memories coming back. And so that's a very kind of a sympathetic state almost. Right. And we associate parasympathetic with relaxation and what have you. Okay. So you go into to a session of map training, you sit down with your thoughts, maybe that some of them are traumatic or distressful, but you eventually your heart is going to slow down because you're just sitting there so it will slow down and you will eventually your brain will learn oh just because I'm having these thoughts doesn't mean I have that my body is going to react you know by panicking or whatever panicking or having heart increase and then right after that 
you go into aerobic exercise. So now your heart is racing, but you're not afraid. You know, you might even actually be having fun. You know, we try to like, in some of our classes, I play music and we, we do these like kind of, I don't know, like brain training dance movements. I don't like to call it dance necessarily, but you know, something to get your heart rate going and it's kind of fun. And, you know, you definitely have to kind of focus. You can't be ruminating too much while you're doing it. And so now you've learned, so your brain again has learned, oh, just because my heart is racing and I'm sweating doesn't mean that something bad is happening. It's, it reminds me of sensory motor psychotherapy or, or Peter Levine's somatic experiencing, which is, you know, bringing up a memory and then allowing the body to have a different resolution physically than it did when it went into typically when it went into freeze, where we think a lot of the trauma sort of resides in the body is when it gets stuck and it doesn't get to, to have a more activated fight or flight response. When we reenact that, the body gets to move that energy through. And that, I talk to my clients a lot about that, which is like, how can we move this energy through you so that it doesn't reside, take up residence and then start to create meaning? And I love the idea that sitting with the energy of a little bit of heart racing or a little bit, and then just, you know, almost like not believing you're, you know, that's the thing about emotions that they come and go and we have millions of them every day. And that it's, it's when we start to assign meaning to them that we get in trouble. And so this is just what you're describing, both using your mind and your body is coming into a place of trust, I think with your system so that your system says, I don't have to focus with a lot of thought. I don't have to ruminate about this because it's just going to pass. It's- and it's natural. I mean, that's the other thing is like just learning a little bit about how it works. You can say, well, this is, <clears throat> this is my body. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that I, I, you know, also wrote about and tried to stress in the book is that it takes time to generate a thought. It takes time to generate a feeling and a memory, right? Those things do not they feel instantaneous. Yeah. Like if I say, I'm going to think about my mother, oh, boom, it came right up. I can see her now in my head. That feels instantaneous, but yeah, it, it took milliseconds Yeah. and maybe 10, 20, hundred milliseconds or something, a little bit more to generate that memory. And then I have this thought of her and then I think, okay, what, what about a memory? So memory would be, you know, something maybe when we took a vacation, to Martha's Vineyard. Okay, so I bring up this memory because I remember my mother had this hat because she was losing her hair and it was like mm. a crazy experience. And okay, so now I have that memory. And then that memory is associated with this feeling, you know, the feelings of within the memory. So that would be her worrying about her hair and then get the hat and goes on and on. Those take time. It takes time to get from a thought to the memory to the feeling. And, and you can train your brain to not go to the feeling. Yeah. And, and it's not about suppressing feelings or suppressing thoughts. It's just understanding the process. Yeah, I'm thinking about so many of my clients who have traumatic memories and that is the only memory, right? So they witnessed someone they loved die. They were there when someone got harmed. And even though they have, you know, let's say like my, my dad, I was with my dad when he died, he was 80. For months afterwards, what I pictured about my dad was his dying body, even though I had known him for the 45 years that I was alive with him. And it, it took a intentional sort of practice of moving away from the traumatic memory and bringing back in the memories of him as a living being. And, you know, you're, you're talking about the emotional state. It's moving away from the emotional state of distress, but then also wanting to be able to, and and this is some of the work I would say that is grief work, which is to continue to have a positive relationship with his memory, even though he's not alive, his memory can be alive. And when we're talking about those, you know, those, there are some modern grief theories that talk to us about the idea of continuing bonds and feeling like you're still connected to the person when you only have that hard and difficult thing to land on, that work is really hard. And what you're describing is using all your resources to move the energy through so that you have more availability. I mean, it just, 
It yeah. makes so much sense, but I don't know that I've heard it talked about quite as concretely. I know I need to let you go. This keeps popping into my head. Do you, do you know, do you remember that story about the Thai soccer team that got stuck in the caves? Yes, I and do. You know, you know, it's about to become a movie. I think it's Ron Howard. I might have that wrong. No. And I'm fat. I mean, everybody I know that works in trauma is like, no, of course I know that story because it was reported as this amazing story because everyone survived except one diver, which was very tragic, but the children survived. And the reason that they survived, although it wasn't well covered, I think in the news was that they had a Buddhist monk who was their soccer coach who taught them to meditate. Wow. So they did not panic. They did not cause their bodies to become distressed. In fact, they were able to eat less food and, and actually need less water because they were able to stay in a sympathetic state yeah. or with calm brains, which is just like, I can't wait to see the movie. I hope, I hope it show. I, I just sort of feel like sometimes some of the ways that our field gets screwed over is that it gets simplified on television or it gets, you know, dumbed down into these ridiculous ways that really actually, you know, it's watched by enough people and they think, oh, well, that's how that happens. I really hope this movie, I just feel like it could be such an incredible reminder and advocate for the idea of like, listen, you know, hard things are going to keep happening. You know, we may be midway through or all the way through or whatever you want to say about COVID. But I think we're all too wise at this point to think that we're not going to have collective really difficult experiences around our next corner. And if, and if we take away anything from this, your map program is available to people. If they get the book, it's there. If they go, I'll link in the show notes, all your stuff, they'll be able to click on it. I, I think I was able to take a full class as a, like a trial, which I really enjoyed. I felt ridiculous in my house, which was also, you know, great and funny. The, the thing that I felt because I did it during COVID, the thing that it reminded me is that one of the things that I miss from exercising in a gym and exercising in a class is people. I know. So I've been thinking a lot about that, that I haven't been exercising the way that I used to. And I do think part of it is, you know, I like, I like the socialization of it, but it is available for people. And it is, I just think it's really, I think it's clever. I think it's helpful. And I am reminding myself right now and recommitting to adding <laughs> yeah, meditation. Like a, a core, like a six week course online. And then Actually, you know, not enough people signed up actually. So I'm hoping to do it maybe in the near future. Again, it's, you know, it's one of those things like it, it's just hard to commit, you know, and, and so I, I, that- I, have, I have a writing workshop and it's the same. It's like, sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, everybody wants to do it. And then nobody signs up. And then when a time comes like, oh, I have something to do. So and you idiots, um, I'm trying to give you what you need. Well, definitely if that happens, keep me posted. I really, really appreciate your rigorous attention to the fact that we had this planned and insistence <laughs> that we get it back on the books. Thank you so much Thank again. You. And also for all you do. Oh, I just, I hope we stay connected this was such a delightful conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank okay. you. Okay. So Thank you, Dr. Torres. Bye-bye. Bye.